Welcome to this podcast from the Carter Center. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for joining us here. I'm Craig Withers, the Director of Program Support for the Health Programs of the Carter Center. It is indeed my pleasure to welcome you to Conversations at the Carter Center. The Conversation Series is an opportunity for the Carter Center to engage the community on current events as well as the work of the Carter Center worldwide. We are glad that you all are here. I want to especially welcome the Carter Center Ambassador Circle and Legacy Circle, students and faculty from the Nell Hodgson Woodruff School of Nursing of Emory University, Carter Center guests, and of course, our friends from the community. I would like to begin tonight's program by introducing a short video on the Carter Center's Ethiopia Public Health Training Initiative, the program on which tonight's conversation will focus. Some of you, well, all of you should have handouts in your seats with a sampling of headlines taken from various articles on the global healthcare crisis. These articles are addressing the particular issue referred to as brain drain, the dangerous void left when skilled healthcare professionals migrate to other countries to pursue other opportunities. Without access to health services by qualified health professionals, on a daily basis, people suffer from maladies and other health problems such as diarrheal disease, malnutrition, malaria, and HIV-AIDS, to name a few. To deal with these challenges, the Ethiopian government, in partnership with the Carter Center, embarked on a unique and cutting-edge public health strategy over the past decade to improve the quality of training of health science students in Ethiopia. Thanks to this improved training, Ethiopia is well on its way to building a workforce of resident public health professionals to meet the health needs of Ethiopia. If I may please have the video. Thank you. Sub-Saharan Africa has almost one quarter of the world's burden of disease, but fewer than 5% of the world's healthcare workers. This healthcare gap has affected no country more than Ethiopia, where in the early 1990s, nearly half of its 76 million people had no access to even minimal healthcare. Long challenged by drought, famine, and poverty, in recent decades, Ethiopia has struggled with the loss of healthcare professionals to countries with more advanced training and greater career opportunities. In response, the Ethiopian government launched an ambitious plan in 1991 to build 500 primary care centers in underserved rural areas 
and to train healthcare workers to staff them with the help of the Carter Center. The decade-long partnership of the Carter Center, the Ethiopian Ministries of Health and Education, and seven Ethiopian universities has now trained a core of nurses and other healthcare professionals to address a multitude of very specific health problems in the countryside. Ethiopia is a very rural country. The healthcare system is inadequate to meet the needs of the people, especially in rural areas. Um, families face crisis in terms of maternal delivery, um, malaria, HIV AIDS. These are typical problems, health problems that you will see uh, that they do not have access to adequate health care for. Called the Ethiopian Public Health Training Initiative, the project has created hundreds of academic curricula and obtained textbooks and lab equipment. Faculties are now better trained, and healthcare workers have more confidence that they can address the challenges they will face in the field, from debilitating diseases such as malaria and blinding trachoma to routine screenings for malnutrition and reproductive health. The result, 90% of Ethiopia's rural population now has the potential for regular care and the government has set new goals to build an additional 600 primary care centers and graduate 5,000 health officers by the year 2011. Health officers function probably at the level of master's prepared nurse practitioners in our country and they will be the ones who will manage and provide and oversee the care in the rural primary health care centers that are currently being built by the Minister of Health. There has been immediate impact too. When a severe drought struck the country in 2002, more than 2,000 students trained by the initiative were deployed to villages to construct wells, build latrines, and provide basic health care and nutritional information. The students' quick response changed the course of Ethiopia's history. We want to have several things happen. One is that there will be access to quality health care for the villagers and the people living in rural areas in Ethiopia. And that there will be a, a sustained project within the government to continue to monitor and increase and build those health care systems. Ethiopians have struggled to survive for centuries. Now, given the skills and knowledge provided by the Carter Center's Ethiopia Public Health Training Initiative, the country is fast building a sustainable health care delivery system to make life better for future generations and is sharing the successful model with other nations in Africa and beyond. Our panel tonight will share their experiences addressing the critical shortage of health workers in Ethiopia through their work with the Carter Center's Ethiopia Public Health Training Initiative. After their initial remarks, we will give you an opportunity to ask them questions. First, I'd like to introduce Dr. Joyce Murray. Dr. Joyce Murray has directed the Carter Center's Ethiopia Public Health Training Initiative since 2002. As professor of nursing at the Nell Hodgson Woodruff School of Nursing of Emory University, she brings a broad portfolio of experience in nursing practice, nursing education, and public health to help Ethiopians meet the challenges posed by expanding health care systems in their country. 
She's been head of the Department of Nursing at Georgia Southern University, director of accreditation at the National League of Nursing, and associate dean of academic affairs at Nell Hodgson Woodruff School of Nursing. Among her many awards, Dr. Murray is a fellow in the American Academy of Nursing. She received the 2002 Teaching Scholar Award from the Nell Hodgson Woodruff School of Nursing and the Mabel Corsell Award for service from the Georgia League for Nursing. She earned her doctorate in education from the University of Georgia, her master's degree in nursing from the Medical College of Georgia, and her bachelor's degree in nursing from Armstrong State College. Dr. Dennis Carlson has been senior consultant to the Ethiopia Public Health Training Initiative since 1997. Dr. Carlson was integral in the initial architecture of the initiative as a member of the Technical Advisory Committee enlisted by Ethiopia's Minister of Health to explore options for strengthening human resources for health services in the country. The committee's comprehensive plan was the true blueprint for the initiative. Much of his career has revolved around Ethiopia since beginning, his beginning as a general practitioner, surgeon, and primary health care educator at the door of Life Hospital in Ethiopia in 1958. Dr. Carlson has been a professor of community health at Addis Ababa University and a primary health care coordinator for Save the Children Federation working in rural Ethiopia. He has been a Dean of Public Health and Professor of Public Health at Hali Selassie University and a Provincial Medical Officer for the Ethiopia Department of Health during the 1960s. Dr. Carlson earned his medical degree from the University of Washington in Seattle, a degree in tropical medicine and hygiene from the University of London, his Master's of Public Health at the University of California at Berkeley, and a Master's in the History of Medicine at Johns Hopkins University. His wife, Beulah Downing, periodically accompanies him on visits to Ethiopia to supervise orphan programs. And finally, Dennis and his son, Andrew, have written a book entitled Health, Wealth, and Family in Rural Ethiopia, which is currently in press. I now invite Dr. Joyce Murray. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here to talk about the EPHTI. I'd like to start by talking about the World Health Report that came out in 2006 from the World Health Organization. The title of this report was Working for Health. And in this report is an expert assessment of the current crisis in the global health workforce and the ambitious proposals that are being put into place that will take approximately 10 years to go into effect. What this report reveals is an estimated shortage of almost 4.3 million doctors, midwives, nurses, and support workers worldwide. 
That's quite a, quite a number. The shortage is most severe, of course, in the poorest countries, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, where health workers are most needed. I have to say, though, we're not exempt here in the U.S. Being a nurse, by 2015, those of us who are aging and will need nursing care, we need to know that there will be a shortage of 500,000 nurses. So it's a crisis that affects the developing countries, but it also has impact on us. Without these workers, some of the world's most life-threatening illnesses, such as HIV, AIDS, tuberculosis, and other infectious diseases cannot be reduced. The WHO report lays out a 10-year action plan in which countries can build their health workforces with the support of global partners. An example of this is the EPHTI, which has been in existence now for almost 10 years in Ethiopia. We have been working with the government of Ethiopia, the Minister of Health, Minister of Education, and seven of its health sciences universities that trained physicians, nurses, health officers, medical lab technicians, and environmental technicians. The goal is to boost the number of health workers and to build a skilled national care workforce by strengthening the health education. We are doing this through the development of specialized curricular materials and improving the teaching capacity of the faculty. Many faculty in Ethiopia graduate from their program and then in the next day they become the teachers so that the lack of preparation as faculty also has an impact upon the quality of education. Another goal is that we are wanting to and are enhancing the learning environment. Early on there were very few computers, very few uh, opportunities to even be on computer because of the lack of electricity and it goes on and off and we're going to hear more about that later. But we know that at the heart of every health system that the workforce is central to advancing health and there is ample evidence that worker numbers and quality are associated with preventive measures such as immunization coverage, outreach of primary care, infant, child, and maternal mortality. There are many challenges in preparing, sustaining, and retaining a healthcare workforce. Dennis, will you speak briefly about Ethiopia's situation prior to EPHTI? Surely. Ethiopia, a country about twice the size of Texas, landlocked, but situated near the Red Sea in northeastern Africa, suffers from catastrophic brain drain, perhaps more accurately, brain hemorrhage. Eighty percent of medical school graduates flee the country in the first two to three years after graduation. In one case, 24 young physicians were sent to Washington, D.C. for short-term training in HIV-AIDS, but only one came back. Surprisingly, prison health services in Maryland and Virginia are largely staffed by well-trained Ethiopian doctors. Wealthier African countries like Botswana and South Africa 
hire many Ethiopian staff. International agencies operating in Ethiopia employ significant numbers of Ethiopian health personnel, leading to an internal brain drain. Together, these losses cripple government hospitals, clinics, health service management, and health, university health science faculties. Why is this happening? Three connected problems contribute to this constant health crisis. First, the society endures extreme poverty. The surrounding deserts, mountains, and valleys protected Ethiopia's high plateaus in the past for military invaders. At the same time, however, they isolated her from the benefits of cross-cultural contacts necessary for modernization. Ethiopia really only entered the modern world under Haile Selassie, who began expanding education and health services in the 1920s. Only now, in the 21st century has the economy started to grow very slowly. Per capita income is only 35 cents a day. Precious little to compete internationally in keeping physicians and nurses at home. Second, population growth has neutralized almost all economic progress. Even though modern health services reach only half the population, they still upset the balance of births and deaths, which kept population under 5 million until 1900. In the 50 years I have been involved with Ethiopian health care, population has exploded from 15 million to nearly 80 million, six times. Just the housing, feeding, and education of these skyrocketing numbers of people wipes out progress made in economic development. Third, this disastrous population expansion has reduced the per capita <laughs> land available for growing food. 45 years ago, in the central, North Central Highlands, the average Ethiopian farmer had seven acres to cultivate. Now, he or she has less than an acre. Many have less than half an acre. Many rural citizens have no land. While severe droughts and famine are important, reduced land availability has caused half the population, young and old, to suffer malnutrition even in normal years. Such malnutrition results in increased vulnerability to infectious diseases such as you have heard, and also decreased capacity for learning and work. This vicious cycle of population growth and malnutrition and <clears throat> contributes to the nearly static national economic conditions and almost empty government coffers. This leads then to devastating medical and nursing brain drain. Governmental health services are barely able to function. When the present government came to power in 1991, it made accessibility to better quality health care one of its highest priorities. After a year of study and planning, which included nearly all stakeholders, the government restarted 
a highly effective health center program based, which had, based in health centers, which had served the country well from the 1950s into the 70s. Teams of mid-level professionals, led by a health officer, somewhat similar to physician assistants in this country, receiving a baccalaureate degree, would again be trained in clinical care, disease prevention, and health promotion, then posted in rural areas all over Ethiopia. In order to produce large numbers of graduates, the government established four new programs in regional universities and began training in 1996. The Ethiopian Prime Minister invited President Carter and the Carter Center to collaborate with the universities in developing the new programs. The Prime Minister insisted on one critical rule and warning. All training must be done in Ethiopia. These activities must not incur the risk of further brain drain. How should we begin? What resources already existed? Only a handful of seasoned instructors were available in each regional institution. Almost all of the new instructional staff were recent graduates from baccalaureate programs and had no teaching experience. Practically no appropriate books, teaching aids, or professional journals were available either for teaching staff or students. Photocopiers, computers, lab equipment were almost non-existent. It became really clear that we had to start by obtaining adequate training materials, plus nurturing the growth of effective Ethiopian teaching staff. An effective strategy emerged. We would assist Ethiopian staff themselves in creating training materials, tailored specifically for Ethiopia. This challenging process would enhance their analytic abilities, improve their writing and communi communication skills, and contribute significantly to their professional competencies. Simultaneously, at the same time, we would be able to produce teaching learning materials uniquely fitted for Ethiopia. They would fit the disease ecology of Ethiopia, incorporate policies and programs of the Ministry of Health, lay out and facilitate training in the roles and functions of each kind of health personnel, plus be tuned to the language and learning capacities of the enrolled students in these colleges. Such kinds of materials were not available anywhere, in Ethiopia or abroad. Many types of practical workshops were used to implement these plans. Representatives of the five collaborating universities sent senior and junior teaching staff for planning and writing workshops, which led eventually to production of relevant modules, training manuals, and lecture notes. Professor Murray and her colleagues conducted two-week courses in the latest and most effective teaching learning methods each summer. Other workshops concentrated on important disease and health issues such as family planning, essential nutrition, and HIV-AIDS. Significant amounts of text and reference books 
international professional journals and equipment were purchased. An unanticipated benefit was the growth of a strong professional community of health science instructors in the five universities and an effective institutional network which produce, reduced duplication of effort and increased standardization of training programs. Two new universities joined the network three years ago and benefited by the work already accomplished. The ministries of health and education and university administrations clearly were the owners of the whole process from the very beginning. Additional benefits came as individual instructors were able to use their writing for advancement, promotion, and career development. Many reported that the program, program was extremely important to their overall development as teachers and professionals. Nearly all felt significantly empowered. If there is one word that I think captures the essence, it is the empowerment of the teaching staff of Ethiopia. Nationally, the health center team training was a significant success. Several other African countries are seriously considering following Ethiopia's lead. Thank you. You mentioned brain drain. Brain drain is an issue. And one question that we might ask is, why is it such an issue? And what can be done to prevent it? If you prepare all of these health professionals and then they leave the country, what have we accomplished? I think brain drain is an issue because a human factor is involved in it. Everyone wants to better themselves. Everyone wants to provide a better life for their families, for their children, um, for their, their relatives. And given opportunities to do that, I think people make decisions to leave the country. Is there a way that it can be prevented? One of the ways I think that Ethiopia is dealing with it is that they are increasing the numbers of health professionals that they are uh, preparing. Um, they have one program now that's called the Accelerated Health Officer Training Program. The goal of that program that the EPHTI is helping to organize and to implement is to prepare 500,000 health officers for that's Ethiopia. 5,000. 5,000. 5,000. What did I say? 500,000? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Maybe they need 500,000, but <laughs> 5,000 health officers. I was thinking 500,000 something else. Never mind. Um, anyway, the 5,000 health officers and to, to put into these new health centers that Dennis was talking about that they are building. Why did they choose that level of practitioner? Physicians can easily leave Ethiopia and go to another country. Nurses, because they are licensed, could also leave and go to another country. Health officer is um, a professional that would have difficulty leaving a country and getting, being able to practice 
in another country. So that was one of the rationale, but I don't think that is sufficient to, to deal with the brain drain. Um, the brain drain, I think, is being addressed in some ways by the Minister of Health and the Minister of Education. I happened to be in a national management meeting in which both the Minister of Education and Health were there, the seven universities were there, people from different regional health bureaus were there, and they were discussing this issue of brain drain, about what they could do. And the Minister of Health talked about some incentives that they are working on to help reduce the brain drain. For instance, that if a physician graduates and will agree to go work in a very rural area for, let's say, two years, that the government would then assist them to go back to improve and to get further education. Um, and also, when they finished that, they would be placed in a place that would not be so rural. So, the Minister of Health and Minister of Education are thinking about it, but every country is experiencing brain drain. And it, it is an issue. I don't think we have um, an answer to it. They're also considering, where possible, some financial incentives. But it is an issue that we will continue to face um, from Ethiopia and from other developing countries. Um, I have a question for you. Okay. Do you really think EPHTI is unique? I, yes, I really believe EPHTI is unique. Uh, there is, of course, both the universal kind of knowledge, scientific knowledge, that is true everywhere. But the particular ecology of disease in Ethiopia, the programs that the government wants health workers, insists that health workers work, are is different from country to country. Uh, the cultures are different, and we have designed these um, learning materials specifically, specifically for Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. I would like to ask you a question. <laughs> Is the EPHTI model a sustainable solution for, to the problem? Is it something that can continue for years and years? That's a very good question. Um, sustainability, it's a term that we hear quite frequently. And we also watch programs in developing countries that gets started and completed, and once the project is over, everybody leaves and it doesn't continue. So our, our goal is how do we make this sustainable for Ethiopia? Um, I think there are several factors that will help us do that. One is the fact that the Ethiopians have been so much involved in the process of developing the materials of improving the teaching. For an example, um, the teaching learning workshops that Dennis mentioned that we do every summer for two to four weeks. The senior faculty, after about two years, said, hey, we can do this on our campus. We can take these materials and we, as a, a senior faculty, we can take these materials and we can conduct these workshops for new faculty that come on each year. Now, to me, that is one example of how this can become sustainable. 
because once they get to the point that they can take it over and they can do it, that that can continue. And then it, that would be one way to really continue the sustainability in terms of, of the teaching learning. Um, the other thing is, I think, the ownership, that the faculty there are so proud of what they have done and that they own it and they did it, that they will keep this going. As you heard Dennis talk about, to the very point that they were able to use it to get promoted. And if you're in an academic setting, you know the importance of being able to, to write and to publish and to be able to, to get promoted in your career. So there are opportunities there. So I, I think there are some elements that are in EPHTI, Dennis, that will help sustain. It, may, it will not look like it looks now with the support that it may be from the Carter Center after a few years. But the fact that there are enough faculty there, that there, are, there is a core, hopefully, on each campus that will be able to continue the activities because they do recognize the impact of having new faculty better prepared to walk into the classroom when they start to teach. And we did hear lots of times, hey, we can do it ourselves. And, and that was just so delightful to, mm -hmm. to see in their, in their eyes. Do you, do you think this will continue uh, five, ten years? What shape or form do you think that might be? Well, we have had some conversations with the Minister of Health and the Minister of Education, and we have a wonderful staff in Ethiopia. You know, it, Dennis and I don't do this. We have an office over there of Ethiopians that run this project and do an excellent job in connecting with the government, working with them, and keeping them posted on how things are going. And that one way to do this would be to move a structure such as EPHTI into a government-run uh, organization like the Minister of Education that takes care of the curriculum and the materials and the faculty and so forth. And I think that that might be one way that if we can move it into and have it under the guise of the government working with their seven universities, that that would be one way to help maintain and sustain some of the activities of the EPHTI. Certainly over the 50 years that I've been privileged to be part of the Ethiopian healthcare scene, there have been a lot of enormous changes. Um, most of them good, some of them desperately bad. But the good ones is that the very widespread education which is now into every little village and every little community. The, uh, it's now possible to, to talk to uh, mothers that have had some years in school. It's now possible to recruit health extension workers uh, from all over the country who are local and who live in that, that community. Uh, and the uh, widespread uh, uh, progression of immunization, uh, of treatment of such things as uh, the Carter Center is working with trachoma, uh, is reaching across large parts of Ethiopia. So there are, are really uh, important things. The, the, the difficult thing is, is the population growth uh, and still the relatively low level of 
use of uh, family planning and contraception. I would like to ask you one question. You've had over 40 or 50 years 50 experience, years and it was 40 when I, when I first knew you. Now it's 50. <laughs> uh, what are some of the best examples of progress that you have seen this country make in meeting its health care goals? One is uh, the health centers now are, are uh, distributed, placed everywhere in all ecosystems, small towns, larger towns, and this is a huge, huge difference. Uh, there were just a few Red Cross clinics around the country, plus um, Mission Society hospitals and clinics. There still are some um, of these non-government organizations, but the basic thing is that every community has health services uh, to some degree, at least two health extension mm -hmm. workers. Mm -hmm. That's enormous. Well, I, you know I'm going to take this opportunity to talk about the Health Extension Worker Program. And that's because when the government was ready to start this program, they approached the EPHTI that had these materials, the lecture notes, modules, and so forth, and asked the universities to take the ones that would be relevant for training the health extension worker that would be placed in the village if the universities would take those materials, bring them down to the level of the health extension worker, and use those to provide the education. So in some ways, the EPHTI has been connected to that program through the materials and the work of, our, of the universities that have been involved. So uh, the Minister of Health was very grateful that EPHTI was willing to do that, that the universities did that, and they were able to use those materials in educating those young women who went back to the villages the goal was to have two women in the village, and that would be over 28,000 health extension workers in the country. That's certainly, certainly huge. Mm -hmm. What about the uh, amount of output or the uh, impact on, uh, on the, uh, the faculties of health sciences, uh, the, the teaching process? What has the initiative uh, accomplished? during that time? Well, I still remember the first workshop that we did, and it was with senior faculty. And the excitement and the willingness to jump in and participate, because these workshops were very active learning oriented. You had to participate in order to be able to learn. And so I think that what we have seen with the, the teaching learning abilities of the faculty and in reading some of the evaluations from the teaching learning workshops, what they say is that they feel better prepared to teach their students. And they also have done some surveys of the students and the students say um, that the teachers are better prepared, those who have been through the um, teaching learning workshops either at the Cascade or at the national level. And there are faculty who said, I wish I'd had this kind of information, this kind of training when I started my career as a, a teacher. Thank you. Um, since this is conversations at the Carter Center, 
it's only right that we should expand the dialogue to include you all in the audience. Before we do that, I just want to underscore one comment that Dr. Murray made, is that all the staff working on behalf of the Carter Center in the Ethiopia Public Health Training Initiative are Ethiopians. One of the themes is that this program is for Ethiopians and by Ethiopians. Now, I have some uh, questions that are on note cards, and I'll take them one at a time, and uh, Joyce and Dennis, you can decide whether uh, either one or both will <laughs> answer them. And good luck. <laughs> First question. Once the trained health teams are deployed to health centers, are they receiving enough resources and supervision to be able to be effective? Things are a whole lot better than they used to be. <clears throat> uh, the the um, administration and management of health services has been decentralized to the uh, sub-county uh, called a warada or a district. And it's at that level now that the warehouses are, the, the uh, supervisors, the administrators. And almost all of these people have been through the health center team training program over the last uh, 10 years. And so, um, yes, I would say that they are getting uh, quite good supplies, though there are times when they don't. Uh, and uh, that they are getting better supervision than they used to. I don't know, Joyce, if you have anything to add? Only the things that I would add would be related to the EPHTI is that the learning materials that are in the universities are also copies are in the health centers. Some of the copies are theirs because that's where the students go for their clinical work. And so having access to these kind of learning materials in the health centers I think is beneficial not just to the students but also to the staff. Thank you. Next question. In regard to the film we just watched, tell me what is so historic about the drought response project in Ethiopia? The drought in 2002-2003 in Ethiopia I had just taken over as director for about two months when this happened. And we were approached to, by USA to see if we would be willing to work with the universities to take their senior students who were doing their last semester of clinical work into the drought areas and working with the agencies in the areas, working with the people who needed health care looking at nutrition, preventing disease, and so forth. And so we were able to do that. The universities agreed that they would be willing to do this. And this is a very unique experience. I think it's the first time that the universities have been invited to and supported to go into the drought areas to take care of uh, people who were suffering from the drought. I think the outstanding thing is that at the end, 
and they were saying that they were able to reach over 10 million Ethiopians, that they provided care, they assisted in develop, getting safe water, looking at the nutrition, giving immunizations, all of those necessary activities that go into the drought area. And that was very unique. And some of the comments from the people who were treated in a survey that we said, one of them struck me and said, I never thought that my own people would come and take care of me. And it was, it was very striking that, that that kind of comment would be made. And I think it, it brought those students um, into a situation that they may probably never experience again. And we don't want to have another drought just to take students out there, but I think that was just a very unique experience for them. And we, we expected the students to be complaining and resisting going. But in fact, the students really enjoyed this experience and s said that it was very valuable to them as far as their education. Absolutely. Thank you. The next question. Is climate change a concern in Ethiopia? How does it affect the health of the population? Is EPHDI addressing the issue? It, it affects it profoundly, and it seems to international people visiting and to Ethiopians that the weather is really changing. Uh, Addis Ababa, which is at 7,000 feet altitude, uh, is hotter than it, it's ever been as far as I'm concerned. And that isn't where the, the big impact is. The big impact is in the lowlands and the uh, semi-desert uh, areas where uh, no food is growing now. And so uh, global warming is going to be disastrous for Ethiopia. Thank you. Next question. Through your personal experience, working in Ethiopia, have you seen examples of progress in the country in meeting its health care goals? Yes. Uh, enormous. <laughs> I, I, I'm, uh, I'm writing a book about, about that. There, there's <laughs> there's uh, tremendous uh, changes. There was in uh, uh, 1950, a small nursing uh, school sponsored by Red Cross and a couple by mission societies, and uh, nothing else, nothing at the university level. Uh, the uh, public health college w began in the 50s, then medical faculties in the 60s and 80s, and now uh, health science faculties are being opened and developed albeit with very little resources, in uh, approximately uh, 13 or 14 different places. And uh, again, the, uh, the materials that we have produced are being used by these uh, new universities. But uh, the amount of Ethiopian staff who are available at least for a few years uh, is uh, been um, greatly increased. There are 7,000 graduates uh, from the universities during uh, the, since the beginning of EPHTI. Um, the, uh, uh, num how many of, uh, how many 
teachers have gone through the teaching learning workshops, including the cascading? I think close to 900. 900? Mm -hmm. I'd like to say also in, in terms of nursing, of course I keep up with what's going on in nursing in Ethiopia, but um, they now have baccalaureate nursing education and they also have the first Masters of Science in Nursing at Addis Ababa University and is, the program is going very well. So we're pleased to, to see that that level of nursing is also um, in Ethiopia. Thank you. Next question. Is the language of instruction in medical education English or is it done in the national language? If it is in English, is that a limiting factor in enrollment? If in the national language, how does that impact the quality of training materials, etc. Okay, that was a long question. <laughs> um, the language is in English. The major language, there are 86 different languages in Ethiopia, but the major language is Amharic. Um, but students, I think it's the sixth grade where they start um, being taught in English so that they begin to learn English um, so that by the time they get to university they do have some understanding of English. Um, the materials, the health learning materials, the modules, lecture notes and so forth are in English and they're printed in English and there's a rigorous uh, process that we put these through in terms of editing, in terms of being sure that they're validated by uh, the expert in the area in Ethiopia and internationally, um, and then they're printed and put into the universities. So I think that um, that English is, is not their first language, but they do learn English, and so therefore they do teach and write in, in English. Thank you. Next question. Are there any opportunities for U.S. nurses or nursing instructors to volunteer through the Carter Center to work short-term in Ethiopia, about two to four weeks? I am not sure that there are particular programs through the Carter Center. This is the one, only one that I know of at, at the Carter Center. Um, I do know that there are several occasions I've been in Ethiopia and there have been nurses who have been there for two to four weeks, some for six months, some if, if there's a special project that someone is interested in doing. Um, but as far as through the initiative, uh, I don't know of any. Do you, Dennis? I, I think most of these that, uh, most of these opportunities are with uh, non-government organizations that have ongoing clinical services or have training programs uh, in, in uh, like the nursing uh, school near Waliso and those kind. But there are not a lot of opportunities. Thank you. Um, I'm going to paraphrase the next question. And if who, the person in the audience who wrote this I ask your indulgence if I do it in injustice. Uh, 
Um, I think what the nature of the question is, uh, what evidence of success is there in response to the education on family planning? Uh, today, the uh, uh, nationwide prevalence of family planning is somewhere in the range of 10%. In the uh, early 90s, it was somewhere around 2%. So that's quite a significant uh, increase. Uh, however, it should be around 40%. Uh, and until we get there, um, it really is inadequate. And uh, uh, I think the, I'm sure the government recognizes it, but it's, it's a major uh, constraint on economic development. Uh, un until a much better family planning service and use is established there. Thank you. That actually leads into another question on family planning, and that is, and again I will paraphrase a little bit, are the challenges within family planning cultural or religious? What can be done to overcome these issues? Um, shall I try that one? <laughs> I would say both, but yes. It, it's, it's very clear that uh, there are a lot of cultural um, constraints, uh, resistances. The religious uh, constraints are much less than one would find in, uh, this is the Ethiopian Orthodox Church for the most part. Uh, they, there's no proscription, but uh, Traditional women across uh, Ethiopia still believe that every child uh, uh, is a blessing, even if they have six, eight, or ten. However, this is changing as modernization comes, and they realize the cost of education, educating their kids, which is significant because they uh, have to uh, usually... Um, uh, stay in uh, a larger town than what where they live, and so the cost in food and uh, uniforms and uh, uh, school supplies is very significant when you have an average of a hundred dollars per year income uh, and so uh, th this is changing, but uh, too slowly and too too late by by far. Uh, even leaders in the countryside uh, still have uh, families of six to eight uh, size. The basic notion of uh, when are will people willing to uh, use family planning is that they want, will use it when they recognize that their children will survive. And so uh, as long as the infant mortality is above 100 per uh, uh, thousand live births in the first year, uh, that's still very high. It's coming down. It used to be around 200 deaths of infants, but it still isn't far enough so that countryside people are not yet convinced that their children are going to survive, and so they, they do it for insurance purposes. Thank you. Next question. 
How do you ensure that your curriculum and teaching materials are kept up to date? Very good question. Um, in our second round of funding for the EPHTI, that was one of the things that we knew would have to happen. As you know, things change so rapidly that updating is essential. And so it, I think it's like three years, every three years is where we have started having the authors who develop the materials to work again as a team with their, the people on their campus to upgrade and update the materials to add changes because treatments change. Um, there are different ways of, of working with certain diseases and so to be able to be sure that that is um, updated there is a review process and we have one of our staff who work with the universities in updating the materials and once they're done they're reviewed by an international a national expert in Ethiopia and international experts and then they are edited before they are printed and sent back to the universities so there is a review process in place for updating and keeping them current. Thank you. Next question. What has been done to share EPHDI's success with other African countries? Last February um, 2008, we had what is called a replication conference in Addis Ababa. Um, Early on in the project, President Carter said that if this was a success, then we could think about replicating it in other countries. And so this replication conference was exactly our first step in doing that. We invited ministers of health and ministers of education from nine African countries to come to Addis, all expenses paid, and to spend three days in Ethiopia so that we could showcase EPHTI. And we had in that meeting, President Carter was there, um, some of the Ethiopian government was there, all of our universities, our funders, um, seven universities were represented, and it was a huge um, conference and very successful. We worked with the ministers of health, the ministers of education to give them an orientation to the EPHTI and to talk about the possibilities one interesting fact that came out of that, in many of these countries, the Minister of Health and the Minister of Education don't talk to each other. One educates the practitioner and the other one hires it, but never the two shall speak. In fact, in one group they said they had not talked to each other. So I, I think we made some inroads in looking at the fact that those two officers could talk to each other and maybe work together to, to prepare the health professionals. But we have had some interest from three different countries and we will be following up with them and determining what a public health training initiative might look like in these countries. Because every country is going to be different. They have a different healthcare system, they have a different educational system. And so we will have to work with them to be able to determine what their needs are and what they want to have happen. And so we are beginning to do that, and we're excited, and we want that to work. Thank you. Joyce, would you um, perhaps address a little bit the issue of the health learning materials on the Carter Center website? Oh, yes. On the Carter Center website, um, under the EPHTI, 
One of the things that we are doing and have um, permission and have gotten all of the things in place, we have actually placed, I think there are like 35 to 38 health learning materials on the web, which means that other countries can now have access to those. They can look at them, they can use them, um, they can adapt them, but they are available and that was our goal was to, and we have permission from the authors of the materials to place them on the website and that others would have access to them. It's really interesting how all these things come together. I'm now working with a Humphrey Fellow student at Emory University from Burma and he's here and is wanting to develop community health worker materials. So, you know, now that they're on the website, they're available, people can look at them, they can take them and say, okay, here's what we need to do in our country and um, use them as a model. Thank you. Um, that brings our uh, conversation for this evening to a close. I would like to thank our panelists for taking the time to be with us tonight and also thank you, our guests, for a great evening of discussion and interest in learning about the Ethiopia Public Health Training Initiative. In the lobby, there is a sign-up sheet for conversations at the Carter Center email list. Feel free to sign up for this list if you are interested in receiving occasional updates on the events, first chance at reserving seats for upcoming events, and to hear about new events. I would like to remind both the Ambassador Circle and Legacy Circle guests that the shuttles to the hotels are waiting outside the Ivan Allen to transport you back to the Marriott. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. Good night. This has been a podcast from the Carter Center, online at cartercenter.org.